Yeah, I was listening to our old episodes, and I don't know, we shouldn't pull them, should we? That's mad. I mean, the first one's awful, but that's because I'm not in it very much. After that, it's a kind mm. of 2,000% improvement. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. you won't shut up. We were so stilted, you could hear us trying to go, we, we must be professional about this, we must, and that's not how we talk. I definitely had to lower my register for your benefit. Well, I'm just glad that we've set ourselves to chaos mode. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, and welcome to another sterling episode of Save Me From My Shelf with me, Daniel. And me, Abby. We've had a tweet from Margot West who asked us to read Robinson Crusoe, which I personally used to inflict on the first years to torture them. I don't know, what, are you up for it? It's a big one. It's a long one. There's lots of goat husbandry. I was talking to somebody the other day who said that she went to Alexander Selkirk's island, the one that Robinson Crusoe is based on. A bit grim, apparently. So, but, you know, now... Well, a desert island is a bit yeah. grim. Yeah. She was going to go to Easter Island, but apparently it was at Easter, and everyone in Chile goes there for the holiday at Easter. It's a bit on the nose, well, isn't it? On the really big stone nose. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, maybe. I read Journal of the Plague Year during the Plague Year, and that was very good. That's a bit on the nose as well. Oh, you basic bitch. And then I got a text from Justine following up to last week's query about the Beaver Pope. The Beaver Pope update. The Beaver Pope update. Yeah. This is probably the last update we'll get on Week that six. <laughs> <laughs> Just to tie up one last loose end, the Pope <laughs> depicted as a beaver was Pope Urban VI. One of my favourite popes. The election of whom would eventually lead to the Great Schism in 1378, where there were two rival popes which lasted until 1417. See, I don't know about you, but I am definitely an Avignon. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. The anti-pope is the guy in Rome. <laughs> You're not even Catholic. What do you care? Well, maybe I would be if they still had the Avignon one. No one's exactly sure why he was depicted as a beaver. One theory is that it was meant as an admonishment that he would have done well to cut away sin. Brackets, this is my insertion here, balls. Let's have all remember that that's what the sin is referring to. In the manner of a beaver. Beavers cut away their balls to, you know, allegorically repudiate sin. So there you go. Thanks, Justine, for making us talk about balls so much. Corrections Corner. I was wrong about the cookery, wasn't I? The playground law that Gurkhas cut their own hand if they can't draw blood from a, an enemy in battle. Go on. That's apparently not true. The eight-year-old who told me that when I was at school was wrong. It's a kind of orientalist fetishizing of the martial races, isn't it? So we put up a poll on Twitter about is Van Helsing part of the Lucy polycule, Lucy and her three suitors. Daniel said yes because Van Helsing gave Lucy part of his blood. I said no because he has no sexual tension with anyone. Or we had another option about Van Helsing being in a polycule with Mina and Jonathan. And there was a tie between him absolutely not being in the polycule with Lucy and yes being in one with Mina and Harker so yeah I'm annoyed about this so you're you're telling me you're not going to respect the opinions of the poll then I have nothing but contempt for mass democracy I do have one more update and it is our um David Tennant update so contrary to all naysayers David did in fact meet me in front of the Victoria and Albert Museum and we shared a wonderful day together. Um, I think he's actually working on a new project though because he was in character as an elderly Portuguese tourist and he refused to break character. But we didn't talk too much about our new adaptation of The Crucible because of the language barrier. But David, when your project wraps, please give me a call and we can start working out logistics. I think we could get Bruckheimer in on this. Thank you again for a beautiful afternoon. So Daniel, what is our text today? It's hot, really hot. We're in the deep south of America. So it's half a century since the American Civil War and the abolition of slavery. But I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but things are still a bit crap if you're a black American in the deep south. Poverty, inequality, even a bit of racism. And if you're a black woman, you're really in the intersectional soup. But on the plus side, 
Noted mule driver and all-around bellowing guy, Charlie Patton, has just invented the blues. And all of those themes are highly pertinent to the book we're doing, Alice Walker's The Color Purple. I'll give the usual warnings. We're gonna spoil this book. Trigger warnings are incest, rape, child abuse, spousal abuse, especially lots of violence against women, but not exclusively. There is some violence against men. Bit of violence, that's good. <laughs> Loads of anti-black racism, infant mortality, murder, forcible separation of children from parents, and infertility. There's a new one. Ship sinking, colonialism. There's all sorts of mad stuff going on, isn't there? Do you want to give a bit of background? Won the Pulitzer Prize. There's also a film a few years after this was written, a Steven Spielberg film. As I said in the, the clue to the last episode, this is the only film to date that focuses on a female protagonist. All of his other films, at the very least, have a male protagonist. There's that little red girl in Schindler's List. Is she the protagonist? Or is it Schindler's List, Daniel? Yeah, I suppose you're right. I never really thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really love the film. There's there's a lot he gets right about it. It is also very different. There is some stuff that he changes. Alice Walker didn't seem to be a huge fan of the film. And she's like, well, it's moving, but also it's wrong. Why is there a little alien in the juke joint? <laughs> <laughs> little friendly alien in the juke joint. That's crazy. So the book opens on a very chilling sentence, quote, you better not never tell nobody but God, it'd kill your mammy. And then we cut immediately to a letter format. This is in fact another epistolary novel. Can't get away from them. We cannot. Uh, it's nice to see them be reinvented so many different ways though. It's resilient. Yeah, we've had a lot of, there are current, common themes emerging aren't there, between our texts, I think. But instead of chapters, this book is broken up into letters and every letter starts with Dear God. So the main character, Seely, spends most of the narrative talking directly to God in this format. Like he's this pen pal who never answers. Seely is blowing up God's DMs. Good analogy, Grandad. <laughs> so uh, this, it's a pretty grim opening. Seely is 14 years old and her mother's ill after giving birth to a child, God knows how many this is, many anyway. And Celie's father has this ferret-like compulsion to have sex. I don't know if you know that ferrets stay in heat and if they don't have sex, they die. And so he, I mean, brace yourself for this, guys. He starts raping his daughter, Celie, who almost immediately gets pregnant. And he's there like, it's a medical condition, Maureen. The doctor said if I don't have sex every 36 hours, I will literally die. I like that between the horror, we're learning a lot about uh, different ferrets. kinds of rodents. And, yeah. Uh, they're not rodents. Are they rodents? Beavers are rodents, ferrets aren't, are they? Yeah, carry on. <laughs> this is definitely a podcast now about rodents. Sorry we've segued so abruptly, but this is this is your life now. Keep listening, please. Turn in next week for weasels. It's like a kind of modernist poem, isn't it, where we talk about rodents, but there's these weird interjections of summations of novels. <laughs> you know, stream of consciousness sort of thing. But the language is absolutely shocking if you have no idea what to expect. So on the very first page, we get the words pussy and titties. Then Celie's mother dies and she dies furious. Not because Celie is pregnant, oh no, but because Celie is so pregnant, she can't do her chores fast enough. So Celie doesn't reveal to anyone who fathered the child. She just says it's God's baby and oh boy, there's a... There's a lot to unpack there, but I'd just rather throw the whole suitcase away. Find out through rather jumpy narration that after giving birth to her baby, Celie's father took the child while she was sleeping and possibly killed it in the woods. <laughs> That's nice. And now she's pregnant with her second child by her father and knows that he'll probably kill the kid too. I mean, this guy's just made a real commitment to being a waking nightmare. Celie gets uh, a bit more abuse because she's not cute enough after giving birth and is treated like a slave by her own family. Yeah, sorry she's not ready to go to Coachella after giving birth to two kids that have probably been murdered in the woods. Yeah. So her dad's like kind of cools on her, Celie, and starts eyeballing her younger sister, Nettie, and Celie vows to protect her. This is in the first five pages. Yeah, it's, it's all very... This, uh, is, this is a lot? Mercy of mercies. Celie's father marries someone else, another 14-year-old girl. Can you 
imagine that dynamic, though, of, like, Celie, grab your new mother and a new drink and then help her study for her driver's well, permit. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Nettie is starting to be courted by a widower who is the same age as their father. Mm. So, uh, he's only referred to as Mr. Mr. Blank. How old is Nettie at this point? Twelve. Twelve. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's great, great. Every 12-year-old wants to date one of their dad's middle-aged friends. Celie thinks it's, like, kind of a, a good situation because he's only got three children, but she says, oh no, you should stay in school, Nettie. He's, he's only got three children. Like, that's a selling point. Is that going to be one of the pros on his dating profile? Meanwhile, Celie starts making eyes at women because she's not scared of them. So there's a kind of emergent queer identity thing here. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very subtly stated here where at first you're like, okay, you would only just feel comfortable to even look at women because they're not the ones who are abusing you. But I do wonder, do you think Alice Walker is slightly equating Celie's trauma with lesbianism? Like trauma is somehow the gateway drug to Lilith Fair. It's I think it's more like a post-hoc thing, I thought. Very possibly. So yeah. we're not sure if she's gay and abused or gay because she's abused. Alice Walker muddies those waters. And then Celie's also very pleased to discover that her last baby's delivery has rendered her infertile. So... So this book's a comedy, right? Yeah. So Mr. comes over to their house and asks for Nettie's hand. And their father says no. He's like, Nettie's too young. Do not fact check what that means for me. Also, I hear you, Mr., have some scandalous girlfriend named Suge Avery. And also, Dibs. So Celie, who is like overhearing all of this, asks their, quote, new mammy who Suge Avery is. And I, I did actually have to pause here because it didn't twig to me at first that by new mammy she means a girl who is probably younger than she is. It's very like, hello mother, I know you're nine, but can you find out what's happening on the jazz scene in Nashville? So Celie's stepmother does look into it and she gets a picture of Suge Avery, which is the very first picture of a human being that Celie has ever seen. And she thinks that Suge is the most beautiful woman in the world and she's all dolled up in furs and in a motor car. So Mr. persists in asking after Nettie, mostly so he can have somebody to just mind his kids. And their father says, Mr. can't have Nettie, but he can marry Celie. And at the end of the day, this doesn't really matter to Mr. because he just needs somebody to clean for him and give him sex. This guy should just fuck a Roomba and be done with <laughs> it. Celie has this proposal of marriage from this other guy her dad's age who's also kind of courting her sister, and she's confused about what to do. She keeps writing to God. God isn't answering, and that's because God is up in heaven talking on the phone to the Pope, and he's like, Pope, can you hold on a second? Somebody's on my call waiting. It's just Celie. Let it run to voicemail. So Celie then starts asking the picture of Suge Avery to give her advice and wisdom, and the spirit of Suge that Celie imagines tells her she might as well marry Mr. because she doesn't have any other choices, which is terrible advice. Even Celie's imaginary friends don't like her. Celie and Mr. get married, so she's presumably changed her name to Celie Mister now. Celie spends her wedding day getting beaten up by Mister's children. Uh, yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? Jesus Christ. One of, one of them hits her on the head with a rock, which I think it's all kind of bloody and... It's, oh, it's, on her wedding it's, day? It's all awful, isn't it? So, yeah, any other day that'd be fine, but on your wedding day... No, but I mean, just like, you're entering this new family and even then, the kids beat you up. Are we at a Costco buying our trauma in bulk? Celie and Mister drive to town, and Celie thinks that she sees her baby girl, whom she names Olivia, doesn't she? Uh, who is a six-year-old, with whom she assumes to be the girl's adoptive mother. So Celie kind of hangs around the mother and daughter in a slightly creepy way and compliments the mother on how pretty Olivia is. The mother is also the first woman that Celie has ever seen with money. Mm. And she's like, wow, this bitch has two whole dollars and I'm broke as a joke. Nettie runs away from home to live with Celie and Mr. Have you heard the phrase out of the frying pan into the fire? I don't think you ever have. I never have. What no. is that? Because Mr. He still has the hots for Nettie. Uh, I too troll for dates at family reunions. Nettie won't have an affair with Mr. So he kicks her out of the house. Classic. Treat him mean, keep him keen. Yeah. Because She'll be eating out of his palm before sundown. It's mark my story. words. I, uh, it is a love story. I don't want to spoil it, but they get married, don't they, at the end. Um, <laughs> Celie and Nettie have a very tearful goodbye. Nettie is off having adventures and probably is going to do okay for herself and it feels bad about leaving Celie in her predicament. Celie's like, write to me, and Nettie's like, don't worry, nothing but death can keep me from it, but she never 
Right. Does everyone ghost Seely? Yeah, poor old, even our own flesh and blood. <laughs> well, I mean. Nettie's gone off wherever. Seely never hears from her again. She settles into life there, raising Mr.'s shitty kids. After however many years, Harpo. What? <laughs> I. You note that I. Have paused significantly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> because I knew it was coming. Yes, Mr. has a son named Harpo. That is a stupid name. But here <laughs> we are. <laughs> are you going to do that every, every time? Are you going to do it He's every time? He's awful, Harpo, isn't he? Like, not the, well, the character is not a very nice kid, but the brother's awful, Tiffany. I don't know who I'd ha- hate to raise more. <laughs> Harpo, Mr.'s eldest son, is learning all kinds of really great lessons from his father. So Harpo starts saying things like, women work, I'm a man, and refusing to help around the farm. So Harpo asks Mr. why Mr. beats Seely, and Mr. says, because she's my wife, like Harpo's stupid. I think Dr. Spock actually had a chapter about this in one of his parenting guides. So Harpo, who is probably 17 at this point, then reveals that he wants to get married to a girl named Sophia, who he's never spoken to in true Marx Brother fashion. Then, Shug Avery comes to town with her orchestra, and Mr. gets himself all a quiver like jello in an earthquake. And Celie gets really jealous, but not in the way you'd think. She's jealous of Mr. and says that she would give anything just to lay eyes on Shug Avery in person. Celie, the only thing missing from this scene is a jug band rendition of Careless Whisper. Queer reading. <laughs> Harpo ends up courting Sophia, and she immediately gets pregnant. That's my kind of courting. (laughs) (laughs) Sophia, who's pregnant, she and Harpo plan to get married, and Mr. wants to look Sophia over. And Sophia marches in there like she and Harpo are, quote, going to war. (laughs) I think we're going to like her. And Mr. tries to pull this whole, how do we know my son's even the father crap, saying, I bet you're just telling Harpo he's the father so he'll marry you. And Sophia calls his bluff and she's like, yeah, I'm really trying to trap Harpo. You know, this catch, this young Adonis who still lives with his dad and doesn't have a job. She's like, friend, I'm living my best life with my sister in our own place. So suck it, losers. Me and the baby will be waiting if you get off your ass. And Harpo and Mr. are so shell-shocked by this that they, I love this detail, they just sit on the porch until dawn, not talking, staring into the middle distance. I like that as well. If only it was so easy. You know what I mean? Like, if only you could just you'd be slightly arsied to a bloke and then the whole patriarchy just crumbled. That's why I'm just, I'm constantly oh, yeah. negging you. Just I don't feel like I'm, maybe I am the uh, living embodiment of the patriarchy. I hope so. You like, hope so. You well, hope. a lot of feather in my cap. <laughs> At least one feather. One a big manly feather. I, I, I was yeah, just waiting for you, waiting for you to get there on your own. Peacock feather. This, I suppose that's quite manly. This is uh, <laughs> you literally you're peacocking, literally, Daniel. <laughs> well, yes. So Celia's just there observing all of this, confused that a woman has managed to have any agency, and she's just like, huh, Sophia, you're a funky little nightmare. So Sophia has the baby, and she and Harpo do end up getting married, and Harpo turns a shed on Mr.'s property into his new house. And Sophia is a hell of a worker, she keeps Harpo really busy, which he actually likes. So, Mr. is like, well, Sophia's basically running my farm single-handedly, and making it profitable, and making it so I don't even have to work. But on the other hand, she's making me feel insecure about my masculinity, so net gain minus insecurity carry the misogyny, equals Harpo should beat her. Man math! So Harpo asks Seely what he should do, and Seely, who's clearly jealous of Sophia's sort of fire and verve and has internalized a lot of this misogyny, also tells Harpo to beat her. Second. So the next time Seely sees Harpo, he's had the shit kicked out of him, and he tries to pass it off like a mule kicked him, and I just think of that line from Chicago, he ran into my knife. He ran into my knife ten times. He ran into my mule. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, Harpo's there, like, crazy story. The mule decided to take up Irish clog dancing and I got in the way. So Harpo and Sophia's peace is ruined by this. In fairness to Harpo, though, Seely and Mr. did triple dog dare him. So I don't know how he could stand up to that kind of pressure. And Sophia and Harpo start just full-on body-slamming each other like luchadors on the regular. 
Shug Avery is ill, diseased. Possibly venereally diseased. Venereally. Diseased. My favorite adverb, venereally. <laughs> Just uh, you and Shakespeare making shit up as you go along. <laughs> she got VD. Which bit of VD do you think it is? Which bit of? Not bit, not bit. She recovers without medical attention, so what, what VD are we looking at? Uh, this is our new segment, Name That Infection. This is not... No, it's our new segment. Territory. No, it's a new segment. With. Uh, this is a VD podcast now. <laughs> but it's not going to be syphilis. It's not, it's not going to be one of the big ones. It's, it's going to be a smaller one, right? Unless she's going through, like, episodes. Mm. Some of them are episodic, right? I don't know anything about medicine. Okay, a couple so, of doctors. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> True kinds of doctor. Wait, what? You don't? You mean you don't know about medicine? Nah. Why the hell did I let you look at my tonsils for eight minutes yesterday? What were you doing? <laughs> Celie is a dedicated worker at the local church, and she's disappointed to hear the preacher alluding to Shug being a tramp. Tramp in the American sense of the term, meaning. Do you not say tramp? Shag about, rather than homeless person. Oh, shag about. Interesting. That's a new one. That's a term that I just invented. Oh, okay. <laughs> Mister's really cross about this, so after church, he immediately goes over to Shug's place and brings her back to live with them. And thus, a Deep South Madame de Pompadour was born. Also, a religious dude subtweeting somebody in a sermon. Groundbreaking. Just as Jesus would have wanted. Shug arrives. She's dressed in the height of fashion. She looked like she ain't long for this world, but she's dressed well for the next. So, I like yeah. how Shug Avery rolls, Can't, man. Yeah. Shug's first words to Celie, in a peak of bitchiness, are, uh, you sure is ugly. So, uh, I think those were my first words to you as well, in fairness. In a peak of bitchiness. Yeah, that's how I welcome people to the department. Okay, cool. I want to keep you modest. Celie is... She's not pleased, is she, about it? But she is nevertheless forced to tend to Shug in her kind of capacity as wife-servant. And she's like, she's sicker than my mama was when she died. But she is more evil than my mama, and that keep her alive. So that you gotta have a good, it's about will, isn't it? Sugar's got the will to live. The <laughs> also, will to power. Also, Seely having a painful crush on a hot woman who is mean to her and trying to hide it under the smoke screen of dislike is just about the gayest thing I have ever heard. Mr. Gave Harpo a hard time about Sophia being really uh, tough, didn't he? However, here's the irony, Mr. is putty in Shug's hands. To make matters worse, Shug is calling Mr. Albert. Celie didn't even know what his name was. She's like, oh, wow, that's my husband's first name after several years of marriage. Honestly, I think that's the perfect marriage situation for me. The less I know about a husband, the better. That's just not my business. We all have to have some secrets, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like to keep uh, the mystery alive. Mister is squeamish about taking care of Shug in the more intimate episodes of her illness, despite the fact that they have three children together. Uh, what? Yeah. That, there's oh, a detail oh, thrown in. Yeah, keep the mystery alive again. So Celie takes care of her and... Gives her a good old eyeball while she's in the bath. A little female gaze here, don't we? Here we go, this is the line. The controversial line. First time I got the full sight of Shug Avery's long black body with its black plum nipples, I thought I had turned into a man. That is the queerest reading I have ever heard. I like that. This, this, she does a lot of that stuff where she's... The way that she articulates her kind of homosexual feelings, the way she frames it as male feelings, I find that quite... That's quite interesting, isn't it? That yeah. occurs, doesn't it? There's kind of that funny gender stuff. Well, she can't quite conceptualise being a lesbian. Exactly, yeah. So that's she... Yeah, she, but she understands the power dynamics, like men desire and men have power and men have agency. So when she feels desire, she's like, am I turning into a man? What's yeah, happening? that's like, interesting. She's, I like she, it, like, she's weak as a kitten, but her mouth is packed with claws. Would you rather have but teeth for fingernails or fingernails for teeth? <laughs> uh, uh, mm, oh, I hate this. I'd rather have teeth for fingernails because at least then they're strong and I can paint those. Okay, great. Well, I'm glad that's sorted. So over the course of the sponge bath, they start opening up and talking about their children. And Celie then, breakfast alert, we need the old breakfast jingle here. I feel like jingles are in order now. She makes her big breakfast. Ham, grits, eggs, biscuits, coffee, buttermilk, flapjacks. 
jelly and jam. They're different, are they, apparently? Orange juice, grapefruit, strawberries, and cream. Oh, strawberries and cream tea. I thought it was a cream tea. I was like, wow, a whole cream tea. <laughs> so good. That is a big breakfast. Scones and things. Seely eats, so Shug's, Shug doesn't want to eat it, but Seely eats it in Shug's room and Shug sends Seely downstairs to get her some water and starts knocking it back herself. Yeah, bitch snarfles some of it when Seely comes back. She's like, here's your water. What happened to my biscuits and my grits? And what things? happened to my ham? Grits, <laughs> eggs, biscuits, coffee, coffee and tea. Would you want to eat a breakfast this big? I feel like you're undernourished, <laughs> but I feel like you'd be overwhelmed and would just end up eating none of it and curled up in a ball under the table. This one is so huge, though. I think probably this one is the most, like, as a treat. This is like a hangover breakfast, isn't it? I just dream of once in my life being able to take you to a Denny's and just seeing you short circuit. I think you just throw the menu down in rage and leave and hitchhike down the highway. I don't think you'd be able to conceptualize how much food we have in America. So, Celia and Shug, they're starting to bond. She was in love with Shug before she even met her. Now it's getting even worse, especially since Shug is starting to be nicer to her. And Celia's a little bit of a creep. She brushes Shug's hair and she starts um, saving bits of hair that come out in the comb, saying maybe one day she'll, quote, make me a rat to pump up my own hair. What is a rat in this context, Daniel? Is it like a weave? Kind of. It's hairspray with no hold. It's a wig with no style. It's a clump of hair. Right. It's literally just a clump of hair that you ball up and you put underneath your own hair to, to give it. it extra bulk. A bit of stuffing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's disgusting. So things are actually going really well until Sophia talks to Celia and she's like, listen, Harpo used to be really hot and charming. We used to have a good time together. We used to have all this sex. But nowadays he's just completely charmless. It's like he's put his dick on mute and I can't stand him. So Sophia... <laughs> Sophia reports that Harpo has developed this really strange eating habit where basically what she can't articulate is he's just eating his feelings. Even though he loves Sophia, he loves their life together, he's clearly feeling the sting of masculinity because he especially loves doing all the housekeeping stuff and Sophia loves working outside in the field. And this masculinity crisis makes Harpo eat so many of his feelings that he starts to look pregnant. He's got that beautiful after the blackberry pie glow. Mm. Sophia finally tires of Harpo's nonsense and says that for all of their marriage, he just tries to make her mind him, and even though that's not even what he wants in the first place. And she just goes, you know what, Harpo? I wish you a lot of luck with your whole deal. I'm taking the kids. So Harpo has this early midlife crisis in which he then knocks down their house, which was once a shed, and instead builds a juke joint. I think in terms of this building, we are just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic at this point. <laughs> there is no way any iteration of this building is anything but pure garbage. Yeah, clearly got too high standards when it comes to juke joints. So Harpo has Shug headline at his juke joint, and she is dynamite. She draws this huge crowd, and then she surprises everyone, especially Seely, by singing Miss Seely's song, because she, quote, scratched it out of my head when I was sick. But then, you know, just as Celie is on top of the world, Suge breaks Celie's heart and says, it's time for her to go. And that's when Celie confides that Mr. beats her when Suge isn't there. Suge is horrified. She had no idea. But she tells Celie that she's going to set Mr. straight and she won't leave until she knows that he will never lay a hand on Celie again. Despite this, Suge and Mr. start sleeping together a lot. And Suge and Celie then have a heart-to-heart -heart about what it's like to sleep with Mr. Or, quote, do his business, mm. as Celie calls it, which is so mm, depressing. Suge really yeah. rightly points out that it sounds like he's going to the toilet on her when Celie puts it that way. And Celie's like, yeah, that's what it feels like. And Suge is, again, shocked that Celie has never once enjoyed sex. And she's like, we need to poke your sex life with a stick to make sure it's not dead. And in doing so, she explains consensual sex and does that age-old girl tradition of telling someone to go look at their cooter with a hand mirror and then teaches her how to masturbate. <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to say this next bit, but it's in the book. There's no way around it. So Celia looks at herself in the hand mirror. She's like, yep, that's what that looks like. And that pleases her somehow. So she gives Suge her blessing to sleep with Mr. But later on, 
she hears Suge and Mr. having sex, and Celie, who has just been taught how to masturbate, starts crasturbating. And I just, this is a university-funded podcast. I would like to remind you that I did not write this book, and it won a Pulitzer. This is Pulitzer Prize winning crasturbation. In trying case, to think of some kind of pun about Pulitzer. Just, if you don't know what that is, it's crying and masturbating at the same time. I'm sure people can work that out. Can they, can yeah. they work that out? Okay. This is a university-funded podcast. We're not going to have the kind of dross that listen to us that don't understand a basic portmanteau. <laughs> the basic concept that every 14-year-old knows. Just, that was, when I was 14, the joke that all the boys would tell. They thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Yes, that, was a, that is a sort of teenage boy yes, joke. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Maybe it was just our vintage of 14-year-old where <laughs> yeah. it was clearly in some film or something. But I was just reading this going, this, are you kidding me? Quite a melancholy generation of boys, yet also scabrous. You have to be both to make that joke. I'm just going to make a little announcement here that this is a note written by Abby, not by me, but it has been formally requested that I read it verbatim, which I will now do. <clears throat> One night at Harpo's dupe joint, Sophia comes back to squash her and Harpo's beef. <laughs> and she does this by bringing a literal, which I believe you meant metaphorical, slab of beef with her in the shape of an enormous hot himbo boyfriend. He's a boxer, isn't he? I seem to recall. Uh, <laughs> worth it. Absolutely worth it to have my language come out of your mouth. Oh, that that was awkward. Divided by a common language. <laughs> Sophia yeah. is enjoying it. She even flirts with Shug. Or does Shug actually flirt with her? I think they, it's a little it's, uh, mutual. Yeah. I mean, game recognises game. Yes, and Celie is confused and aroused by that. As am I. She says, uh, she says something about Shug being like a man, doesn't she? I like that mm -hmm. as well. That more of that. Shug has this kind of hermaphroditic presence from the novel, doesn't yes. he? I like that. Then Harpo starts an argument. He's got his own girlfriend named Squeak, but he's still annoyed about Sophia having her himbo beef <laughs> boxer guy. Squeak is a mealy mouth type of girl. The kind of girl that he thinks he wants, but is not the kind of girl he necessarily wants. She's such a textbook rebound girlfriend, she is practically a boomerang. Squeak picks a fight with Sophia over Harpo. Sophia's like, well, I'm not interested. Yeah, I don't but want his raggedy ass anyway. I, have you seen my new boyfriend? Raggedy ass. And uh, Sophia is pretty polite, but Squeak nevertheless slaps her. So Sophia punches out two of Squeak's teeth, <laughs> which is how she got her nickname Squeak. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Squeak brought a slap to a tooth fight. Yes. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. No, um, I kind of like that, yeah. <laughs> Next, Sophia is in jail. She sassed the mayor's wife. You can do that so many times, can't you, before you get jailed? I think she just did it the once. That's the amount of times I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> the mayor's wife stopped Sophia one day and kind of patronizingly ogled Sophia's kids and said, why don't you be my maid? This is one microaggression too far and Sophia says, hell no. That's how it all kicked off and the mayor slaps Sophia. Yeah, for saying the word hell to a white woman, yeah. basically. Sophia gets beaten up and sent to jail. I mean, how much more can these characters go through? Because she is, like, brutally beaten. Yeah, yeah, it's a really violent bit. There, yeah, it's th horrible. There is no bottom! So, Celie visits Sophia in jail, and Sophia's like, I can only survive by being like you, meek. It transpires that Squeak's uncle is actually the warden of the jail. He's a white guy. Yeah, so they even dress Squeak, who's very light-skinned, up as much like a respectable white woman as they can. Like, you know, appeal to your sort of family connection, but, you know, obviously don't don't ever act like you're not black. Like, he'll, he'll pick you up on that. Squeak goes to the warden, her uncle, and she lies, and she says, Sophia is just having the time of her life in jail, and since I, Squeak, am actually living with Sophia's husband, my new boyfriend, and I super hate Sophia, you know, she is not being punished enough. And just, yeah, so she tells the warden that the worst thing he could ever do is degrade Sophia by letting her out of jail to be a white woman's maid. And that would, that would really punish her. The and world is my prison. Just definitely don't buy her a velvet robe and a new waffle maker either. She would hate that. So that's basically like the logic of the plan, right? And Squeak comes home. This is awful. Really, really roughed up, having been raped by her own white uncle. There are a lot of layers to this cake, and every single one of them is shit. Weirdly, though, six months after this assault, 
Squeak starts to sing, and she doesn't have a good voice, but she also doesn't really care. And double weirdly, this whole plot with Sophia actually works, and Sophia ends up as that mayor's wife's maid after all. They do say that at least it's not quite as bad as jail, because Sophia was clearly dying in jail, so here she's like marginally less dying. So Sophia finally gets a little bit of her spark back and she asks Celie why they haven't murdered the mayor's whole family for her yet, which I do actually find really funny. Hmm. Shug is making a lot of money on the road performing, singing her, singing her blues songs, and she has a surprise for Albert and Celie for Christmas. The surprise is one Grady, her husband. What? Yeah, Shug has a husband. Here's my, here's my like, on again, off again, married couple lovers. Grady's naturally very excited to meet them. Uh, <laughs> so Mr. gets royally ratassed, as one does. <laughs> I think he spends most of the book drunk, though. He seems to me like a man who wakes up in a pool of something every morning. What that thing is changes every day. Yeah, well, Shug tells Celie that once she discovered that Albert was beating her, she kind of went off Albert. Um, Why'd they have all that sex then? Was that goodbye sex? Final fling. Shug's like, if you was my wife, I'd cover up you up with kisses, Stella licks, and work hard for you too. So, pretty good deal being offered there by Shug, I think. Uh, sorry, sorry, that's so romantic, I'm just gonna slide bonelessly to the floor. That's charming, that's adorable. Licks in this context being strikes Hits. rather than like a weird kiss. Silly's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, actually, things are a lot better with uh, me, old man, Mister, since uh, you told him off. Now I only get the odd slap, so things are improving. He even like makes a very vague effort when they're having sex now, but you know she doesn't really appreciate it. But nevertheless, it's the thought that counts, isn't it? Yeah, Can't yeah. Count the thoughts. Um, <laughs> cute. Thank you. I just, I just like that. You know, he he tries and he. He's, you know, she can't get anywhere. He's like, oh, why is this because of all of the beatings? How many times do I have to not really apologize for anything before you get over it and admit that I'm just great at sex? And she's like, always one more, friend. Meanwhile, Mr. and Grady become best pals, don't they? They go on a drunken bender. Celie and Shug have a bit of a lie down together. And Celie starts unburdening herself to Shug about her experiences with her father. She describes how her father raped her. And it was during a haircut. Or well, the premise was a haircut. Yeah, yeah. Which is really, it was a chore that Celie really used to love doing. She loved cutting hair. And her father was like, come cut my hair. And she's like, oh, hooray. And then it turned very bad. After having a bit of a heart-to-heart, -heart, then they get it on. And it's uh, quite a moving bit. So Shug is here just healing everyone's wounds. Then, just when everything seems to be going really well, we cut to Celie saying, Dear God, this is a letter I've been holding in my hand. And it's a letter from the long-assumed dead Nettie, her sister, saying she's not dead, and she's actually been writing to Celie steadily over the years. And she reckons that because Mr. said back in the day when he kicked her out of the house, that Celie would never hear from Nettie again. Nettie supposes that he must have been hiding all of the letters all of these years. That is a felony, just throwing that out there. It's a felony. So Nettie says in her letters, don't worry, she's doing well, and shocker, she's with both Celie's daughter Olivia and Celie's son, who Celie knew nothing about. I mean, she assumed that he, you know, was killed by her father back in the day. And all of them are coming back to the area within the year, and the only reason Celie got this letter at all is because Suge checked the mailbox when Mr. and Grady were out drinking, and she found it accidentally. Celie cracks, and before she knows it, she's approaching Mr. with a razor. Get his ass. I just think the razor is also an important choice, given her trauma with haircutting. Yeah. Suge immediately clocks the situation, and she knows a murder is about to take place in front of the entire family, and she manages to sort of divert everyone's attention and get Celie out of there. Hey, look at me! <laughs> Shook dancing around. <laughs> she manages to get Celie calmed down before anyone else realizes, and I personally would have sat back and seen how this would have all played out. I think if Shug were a real friend, she would have helped Celie dispose of the body, but I'm also frequently bored and have no moral compass, so. And Celie goes basically comatose for the rest of the day. She just crumbles like the city of Jericho. And under the pretense that Celie has a bad fever, Suge and Celie get all holed up and talk. And Suge talks about her own life, being kicked out of her family's house for being a sinner. She was sent to live with this wild aunt who, quote, I love this line, fed 50 men and screwed 55. Quite, all right, okay. 
Question. Any overlap? Do you think there was any overlap or didn't there were 105 men? <laughs> <laughs> or is it... We can have sex or I can feed you. Or I was wondering if there was a little bit of overlap. She's like, you got, we've got the three uh, <laughs> options. Uh, continental breakfast yeah, co- or... Continental breakfast and eh? shag. Eh? Or the... The you know, shag. Or the pear. <laughs> you can have ham, grits, <laughs> eggs, biscuits, coffee, butter, flapjacks, jelly and jam, orange juice, grapefruit, strawberries and cream. I always get that wrong. Tea. Uh, I would be so insulted if somebody chose the food. Right. It's a so test. What are my options? Sorry. It's either sex with you or ham, grits, <laughs> eggs, biscuits, coffee, buttermilk, flapjacks, jelly and jam, orange juice, grapefruit, strawberries, and cream. Tea. Ooh, I think I might go with the ham, grits, <laughs> eggs, biscuits, coffee, buttermilk, flapjacks, jelly and jam, orange juice, grapefruit, strawberries, and cream. That was a lot. Of food. <laughs> the moral of the story is I'm obsessed with this aunt and I want to follow her around like she's the Grateful Dead. The spin off. So Shug and Celie eventually go through all of Nettie's letters in secret and they find out that Nettie did as Celie had recommended back in the day. When she was kicked out of Mr.'s house, she went to the only place she could think of, which is that couple that had adopted Celie's daughter. Turns out they did adopt both of Celie's kids. And this couple are missionaries, and they ended up taking Nettie in as kind of an au pair situation, and they take the whole family to Africa. And these letters are the first time that every entry doesn't start with Dear God, because God is dead to Celia at this point. The book takes a bit of a left turn here, this time. <laughs> now we go into the, uh, the adventures of Nettie. Nettie is having a great time. Thriving, isn't she? Learning, seeing the world. So she's like, I'm going to Africa not just to do missionary work, but to uplift black people everywhere. Celia's upset by the whole thing. Then Sugar's like, aha, what if you make some trousers? Celia's like, oh, but, you know, a lady can't wear trousers. Mister will be funny about it. And Sugar's like, he used to really love it when I was wearing trousers. Yeah, when we started dating, we did little bedroom stuff where he put on my dresses, <laughs> I'll put on his trousers. Exactly. So yeah. if he comes at you with all of this gender normative crap, go f*** this and guy. And you practically wear the trousers in this relationship anyway, because you're the one doing all the hoovering. So kudos to you. <laughs> More letters from Nettie. She is now in Africa, and she is miffed with the Olinka, because although she's like excited to reconnect, there's that bit where she sees Africa for the first time, and she's very moved by it, because she's like, oh, I've never, uh, you know, I've never really thought about it before, but here it is, the, the homeland or whatever. But when she actually arrives there, plus ça change, you know, it's all more of the same old shit. The Olinka have these awful gender dynamics. She tries to kind of teach some of the girls to be a bit more uh, independent and stuff. I think, counterpoint, we just need a giant Abrahamic-style flood to come wash this all away and start from scratch. Great. Just floating that idea. Finally, a big rubber company comes to build a road into the Olinka village. They burn down the forest and everything, don't they, in the Olinka? Well, they're not very pleased by it. (laughs) While there's all the kind of the grand uh, adventures of imperialism, there's also this uh, family trauma where Samuel and Corinne, the missionary couple, assumed that Nettie was the uh, mother of the children. Well, it's another edition of Protestants who don't talk about their feelings and let their love slowly curdle to hate. It's like, is, is the au pair secretly the mother of our adopted children? We'll never know! While they're all talking about the ambiguous parentage of the children, Samuel and Corinne reveal their half of the story, and it transpires that the father of the children, whom Nettie and Celia seem to be their father, is actually not their dad. Big shock. Bombshell. Celia's pretty pleased, isn't she? As you would be. Yes. A little bit less incest is always a net gain in yeah. any story. It's just sort of like... It's a light incest yeah, yeah, exactly. now. Yes, thank you. Turns out actually their biological father was lynched. He ran a shop and it was too successful for the whites to be getting on with. They didn't like that. They were like, the deals in the shop are way too good. <laughs> so they killed him and Alfonso, turns out the guy's called Alfonso. Cool name for a bad guy. He's, he kind of moved in on the scene. Celie is pretty disturbed by all of this and imagines that God must be asleep. And Sugar's like, you've, you've been through a lot, love. <laughs> 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 to say the least. Why don't you come up and live with me in Memphis? Because she's on the Memphis scene, taking sniffs of cocaine and stuff like they did in Memphis. So Celie, for the first time, stops talking to God entirely and instead starts writing her letters to Nettie. Nettie is her new god now, as it should be. So Celie says that for the first time in her life, she actually wants to go and see her pa, who is now her step-pa. 
So she and Suge get all dolled up and they go over there because Celia is actually tougher than mud. I kind of love her for this. And she's really disturbed when they go over there because the horrible house she grew up in, she realizes is actually beautiful. And her stepfather looks wealthy and extremely young. And she's like, what the fuck? And then Celia's stepdad does something you will never see coming. He split up with his old 14-year-old wife, who by now is probably in her mid-30s or later, and he's married a 15-year-old. God, you think you know a guy. Yeah. And Celie finds out where her biological father is buried, and she visits the grave. Meanwhile, we have some more adventures in Africa. Nettie says that Corinne, the missionary's wife, got ill and died. And now Nettie is getting with Samuel. No. There are other men in the world, Nettie. This guy's about as erotic as the DMV, and you can do better. I know you're stuck in Africa with the guy, and you kind of have this weird surrogate family, but... Well, all the other blokes around her, even where she like, always talks about how she doesn't like the, the men of the Alinka. I'm just gonna... You don't have to marry anyone, I know. Uh, yeah, true. I was gonna throw this idea out there. You don't have to marry anybody. It happened. Get over it. Uh... <laughs> well, that's me told. Celie is in the midst of a crisis of faith. Shug is like, well, you know, why don't you just become some kind of weird pantheist? And you know, she says that. Just there's gods everywhere. I'm just a fun-loving lass, and I just see God in everything, and I'm having a great time. And so he, just, just copy me. And God wants us to enjoy the world. God love admiration, and I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. That's what Shug advises Seely. So you know, start start seeing the nicer things in life, pretty much. So that's that's gonna sort out all of Seely's problems. I think. <laughs> uh, they have a big family dinner. Yeah, I think it consists of. <laughs> no, I can't even find the sheet now. <laughs> uh, they have a big family dinner, and Shug announces that she and Grady remember that guy. Grady, they're leaving. What's more, they're taking Celia with them. Mister's like, oh, my dead body, and Celia's like, well, Quote, your, your dead body, yeah. just the welcome mat I need. So that's him told. Celia then is like, yeah, I found the letters. Nettie's on her way home with my kids. You know, the whole bunch of us, when we're all here, we're all gonna whoop your ass. Yeah, Mister is the expression, oh, so why am I now the bad guy writ large? Uh, and he's like, I didn't even know you had children. She's like, yeah, they're great. My kids are fucking dope. So they're better than your kids. Your kids are awful. Yeah, she says they're, quote, better than the fools you didn't even try to raise. Ooh, ooh. So <laughs> Harpo objects. It's time for a breakfast of hard truths, friend. Yeah, consisting of... <laughs> Daniel, I swear to God. Okay. It's because you tried to domineer over Sophia that she fought back, and that's how she got into the clutches of the white folks. So you're you're an ass. It's time for a few home truths. That's what's going on here. Mister tries to slap Seely. He, he's brought a he's brought a palm to a knife fight. <laughs> she stabs him in the hand. Yeah, she's basically. Like you and your bloodline. And he's like, I'll never give you a dime. And she's like, well, I don't want anything anyway. Not, I didn't even ask for your sorry hand in marriage. So then Shug decides, you know what? We're just going to flood the system. And she's like, oh, by the way, Squeak is also coming with us. <laughs> so Squeak is going to be a singer up north. And Harpo initially objects, but he's like, you know what? I am done domineering over women. I'm going to let Squeak go to pursue her dream, and I'm going to stay here with the kids. Mister, meanwhile, isn't done with Celia at this breakfast, so he insults her in these really stupid ways, saying that she can't cook or clean well, like she'd give a shit about that. Then he says she's not even good enough to be Shug's maid, and Celia's like, oh, I'm sorry, what? I can't understand you. I don't speak dick. And then she does the natural thing, and she lays a curse on Mister, saying, quote, until you do right by me, everything you touch will crumble. Until you do right by me, everything you even dream about will fail. Every lick you hit me, you will suffer twice. The jail you plan for me is the one in which you will rot. Anything you do to me, already been done to you. And I have never heard a phrase that belongs on the back of a leather jacket more. <laughs> and then she flicks a cigarette in his face and revs her motorcycle with sugar on the back and she pops a sick wheelie spiritually. So, they head over to Memphis. Suge goes back to work touring. She's trying around America. Please remember, listeners, that a trouser subplot has been bubbling up. Celie loves making trousers. Can't two, stop sewing them. Two leg trousers, three leg trousers, four leg trousers. 
She's making all sorts of crazy trousers. She's a trouser artiste, isn't she? It says in the book pants, but that means something different in the UK, so Daniel is very consciously not saying it. Also, she gets into the reefer, doesn't she? She's, she's puffing on an old reefer. You might as well call it jazz cigarettes like my grandfather would have done. So meanwhile, Mr. who's left home alone with his wife and girlfriend and best friend, maybe boyfriend Grady, all gone, he has a real come-to-Jesus moment. He initially almost curls up and dies because he just can't take care of himself anymore and just doesn't have anyone around. And Harpo, in a really charming expression of healthy masculinity... Don't like that. Turn cradles his father and nurses him back to health a little bit. And this makes Sophia, who's decided to stay with them, with Harpo and raise his and Squeak's kids, she falls in love with Harpo again. Oh god, I was getting so tired and confused by this extended family. <laughs> I know, yeah, well, you... <sighs> you know what they say, women just can't resist men who cradle dirty, mean alcoholics. So they start living together and they look forward to the time when Squeak comes to visit and just generally everyone gets along. So Mr. finally gets over himself, he gets his act together, he starts working the farm and taking care of himself. Bugs in the old hoover. Yeah, he finally cleans the house and cooks for himself, and when Celie comes down to visit, she's shocked by how well he looks. He's even wearing a suit, so I guess he's dressing for the depression he wants, not the depression he has. <laughs> and he also sends her the rest of Nettie's letters that he's hidden for years. Then, Celia and Nettie's rapist stepfather dies while having sex with his 15-year-old wife, so gross all around. Don't do what he loved. Just, <laughs> yeah. I hate that, because he wins, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, he wins, like, yeah, yeah he win yeah. dies with a smile on his yeah. face. Just not enough therapy in the world could get that image out of your head if you're that wife. Yeah. So Celia and Nettie inherit their childhood home. I was a bit annoyed by this too, though, this whole kind of like... And then they inherit money. Yeah, it's, well, it, it's a little Dickensian. I was going to say, yeah, there's lots of Dickensian devices in this, aren't there? And this is the big one. And their real father also left them a store, and Celia doesn't know what to do with the store. So Suge suggests that she turn it into a store that sells pants Again, for women. Again, yeah, this is such a sort of naff trope, isn't it? I, like, I want Celia to have a happy life. I'm very pleased that Celia's inherited a house and is, loves making trousers. She's found her metier, but it's naff, isn't it? It's, it's pretty naff. I would like to see her Shark Tank pitch for this. Trousers, but for women. Or room in the ass. Yeah. Ooh, go on. That, that's it. Oh. So Celia is over the moon, but then... Just again, when things are going well, she finds out that Suge is in love with someone else, and it's a 19-year-old boy, and they must be, what, well into their 50s by Flautist. this point. He's a florist. Yeah, and he plays... Whoever heard of Blue's Flute? Blue's Flute. What's the line? There's a line. That's the... That's a... I just wrote Blue's Flute. <laughs> Suge doesn't understand why Celie is so jealous of this new guy when Celie was never jealous of Grady. But Celie says it's because, quote, Grady never bring no sparkle to your eye. Oh, this is, this bit's killing me. And apparently, in the meantime, Grady and Squeak got together and ran off to run a marijuana farm in Panama. So Suge says she's getting old and fat and she knows this thing with this young boy won't last, but she wants to have one last hurrah with a hunky dude. Suge has run off with the florist. I have nothing to add that's yeah, funnier that's, that's than that. <laughs> Celie, meanwhile, goes back and visits Mister, and they have they had a very nice time together. Uh, Sitting on the porch, yeah, chatting, smoking their pipes. So that's quite a nice bit. You're so charmed by a pipe. It was just a touching image of them both smoking a pipe. This is very touching about a woman smoking a pipe in particular. I don't know why that is. And they have heart to heart. Then they puff on the old pipes and they sew trousers together, don't they? Mister mm. gets into it. He likes making trousers now. He's like, come on, we make. We make beautiful pants together, darling. <laughs> why don't we? Why don't we give give it another go? I've learned me a lesson, and uh, see, it's like uh, all right. Uh. Yeah, we we were never really married, and frankly, I am a voracious lesbite. Yeah. After that, she starts calling him Albert. So there's some kind of like, you know, cathartic new stage in their relationship. Meanwhile, Celie hears that Nettie's boat has been sunk by Germans. It's the war all of a sudden as well. It's just a lot of time has passed and now it's World War II. Uh, they just do kind of vaguely allude to it from time to time, don't they? But they don't really give a shit. She's upset about that, but she kind of like denies it, doesn't she? Celie's like, oh, they can't have died. Meanwhile, Chug goes to the State Department to try and track the family down. She gets over the flautist, the blues flautist. Oh and, no, poor what's his name? Yeah, and she and Celie get back together. Celie starts writing to God again. She's like, Thanks, God. 
Turns out that he's fine as well, by the way. Yeah, this was all just a red herring. We needed a little extra peril thrown in at the end. I kind of wish, not that I wish this book to be longer, but I would love it if the kids showed up and Seely just couldn't f***ing stand them. That'd be an act too I could get behind. Well, yeah, because instead it's 4th of July, they're all kind of like, that's a white person's holiday, we don't really give a fig about that. Yeah. King George said the slaves could go free if they fought on his side. So actually, once again, Britain comes out looking pretty nice. Let's not get into that. Next up on the BBC, how the smug British lost their colonies. <laughs> Gave them back after improving them. Uh, uh, Followed by on the BBC, how Daniel Jenkins Smith was murdered. <laughs> anyway, in conclusion, everything's really happy. Seely's like, I've had a shit life, but I'm really happy and this is the youngest I've ever felt. The end. The moral of the story is you men better get your acts together. Because when the misandrist revolution happens, we're only sparing Daniel and we're going to keep him in a zoo. So. I thought the part of the story was, you're only as happy as you feel. Boy, did we approach this from different angles. The end! Should we cast this? Please. I really don't think you can get much better casting than the 80s film. I think that's a pretty unimpeachable film. There are some mild tweaks, but not in terms of the casting. If I had to cast this today, I would cast Lupita Nyong'o as Suge because she is beautiful and they talk in the book quite a lot about her incredibly dark skin color. And frankly, there aren't that many women in Hollywood who have skin that dark. I would have as Mr. Daniel Kaluuya because Danny Glover is actually quite tall and Mr. is supposed to be very short and Daniel Kaluuya is only 5'7", so I think that that would be a more interesting Height shaming the guy. No, yeah. you say from your six-foot mountain. And then, okay, so here's my unconventional choice because she is way too pretty to be Seely. I would cast Gabrielle Union because she has, <laughs> given, given how her sort of whole prof profile has gone in recent years, she has a lot of quiet rage and soulfulness, and I think she's very undersold as an actress. I want to give her a really, like, meaty role for once. And a rare speaking role for Harper Marx in the role of Sophia. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to talk about is the narration style. So this book is told in first person in a semi-dialect with really unconventional grammar. We never get an omniscient narrator speaking in dialect, almost never. So you get a sort of first person like this fairly frequently, but you never get that sort of like an I'm a nobody narrator, I'm just the voice of God speaking in a dialect. Mm. The, di you know, the third person omniscient narrator is always speaking in a very sort of white middle class way. It's just, it's just a way of reinforcing the baseline, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Th that sort of norm, the norm of speaking, the default, the right way to speak, yeah, is, is sort of this white middle class way. Colorism is a recurrent theme, isn't it? People being blue-black, for example. It is conscious of the power dynamics of colorism, but it doesn't really make a value judgment in and of itself. So women of all sorts of l colors are portrayed as beautiful and desirable in different ways, but they acknowledge that the sort of power exists in like the in social ways. world of the novel yeah it has a power even if like they kind of also take that with a pinch of salt bringing us on to the color purple why the color purple why does suge pick that as the thing that would piss god off if you ignored it um don't know what, what were you thinking i thought it was more the association with black skin mm. i know a lot of black artists use purple in fact the, the cover we're looking at right now there's sort of a, a purplish tinge to the skin prince there <laughs> Yes, fair enough. It was the 80s. Yeah, you think she was just really into... Yeah, it's, it's pretty much an extended fan letter to Prince. Uh, we've cracked it. We've solved the book. Thank you for coming. That's how literary analysis works, isn't it? That's, um, <laughs> that's the end of the podcast. We will never get a better analysis than that. Yeah. But also the fact that it's a combination of other colours... So yeah. I didn't know if there's some sort of intersectionalism or there. I, I don't know the complexity of it. But then also the rareness of that, because it's isn't it about little little glimpses of something in a field? Or, yeah. Yeah. So there's a kind of it's both a blend of things, but also something hidden, yeah. a hidden gem. Can I ask? This opens with an epigram by Stevie Wonder. Oh yeah. Show me how to do it like you. Show me how to do it. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> what is this? Am I being dense? I just really didn't get this. It, it gave me nothing. Is that the color purple? Is that a little gem I'm not seeing? Well, mate, well, evidently, I would say. But there's a lot of, like, learning how to behave and how to cope with things, isn't there, throughout. Like, Suge 
teaches Seely how to kind of view the good things in life, but also Seely teaches Shug how to... Empathy on Yeah, things. exactly, yeah. yeah. And, like, Sophia and Seely have this kind of reci reciprocity as well. I could we? only survive because I acted like you, exactly, but yeah. I give you my fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so I think there is probably a bit okay, of that going on. Okay, all right. It's a relational world that's being portrayed. So in terms of some advice, this book is actually, I think this is a good exercise in dealing with uncomfortable topics. How do you talk about this in a classroom or to friends when, you know, it opens, as we said, with the most incredible trauma and quite visceral language on page one? How do you talk about this analytically when you feel embarrassed? What I like to do is focus on what food they're having instead. <laughs> Daniel... It's all a sort of weird, um, libidinal bait and switch. I was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Daniel yeah, supplements so his discomfort. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard this on this podcast before, but get therapy. Okay. That's what all the food stuff is. Yeah, it's exactly, whenever we yeah. talk about sex, you're like, um, uh, and, 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 and a big fried egg. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. Ooh, this is a. It's all coming out. It's all making sense now. So. What you should do is think about yourself as a doctor and speak in sort of clinical language. It's only embarrassing if you are actually embarrassed by it. So it helps to frame this as something the text does rather than your sort of prurient reading. So you can talk about, you know, oh, this imagery is portrayed by the author as very phallic, or yes, this is a particularly sort of vaginal reading as, you know, depicted by the, like, put everything on the author, make this about them, that gives you distance, that allows you to speak about it professionally. So the clue to the next episode, this is the oldest text we've done yet. Whoa. And these people need therapy so badly that therapy was invented just for them. Good clue. I like that. Got no clue myself. Probably for the best. Here's a riddle for you. There's a clue. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so please write into our email at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Please subscribe wherever you listen. If you want to write into us, we take book recommendations. We take all sorts. What's your favorite Christopher Plummer movie? That was a, you know, conversation from a previous episode. What's the weirdest thing you've ever done for a love interest? These are ongoing topics, for friends. How long have you been a plum bag? How long have you been a plum bag? Spelled with two Bs. We've had a long row about this, and we finally settled into an uneasy alliance. One M, two Bs. Hi, I'm Daniel. I've been a plum bag for, for about 14 years. Uh... Hi, Daniel. <laughs> All right, thank you guys for listening. More we'll cheerful read next week, innit? Ta-ra! <laughs> Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms.com underscore podcast on Twitter and do not I'm going to remind you do not forget to rate, review and subscribe do not forget thank you